Turn your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 9, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Um, pray for me. Um, I just I have a lot of burdens and cares on my heart, and they're on my mind. And um, sometimes that kind of takes over. Uh, who I want to be and what I want to be doing and um, most of them are cares and burdens that I really I mean I can't really talk to anybody except the Lord about it and they're the cares of a pastor and um, so pray for me okay if you would pray for your pastor and pray that um, God will continue to use me, my wife, our family in this church um, better than he has in the past. Not that he's done a bad job in the past. It's just that I always want things to be better than they were. And I am of that belief. I've said this before and I say it again. I believe that the days ahead of us are better than the days that are behind us. Now we may not when we see what's going on in the world, we may not understand it that way, but I, that's what I believe. And um, so anyway, just pray for me if you would, especially this morning, all right? If it was up, if it was up to me, I'd sit down this morning and, and say, Brother George, come up here and preach another message, whether you got one or not. But I think the Lord would have me obey him and uh, continue this morning uh, this is what I would have preached last Sunday morning, and I'm kind of glad I didn't because there was some things that God wanted added to it, and I'm going to share that with you this morning. We've been talking about righteousness and um, what exactly righteousness is, what it isn't, and uh, learning, learning from the Word of God, and that's what we're going to try to do this morning is learn from the Word of God exactly what righteousness is. Let me give you, by way of illustration this morning, the story of, this is how I understood it. This, I, I, re, I read this before, and uh, somebody else may have a, a different version of the story, but this is how I remember it going. And it's the story of Martin Luther. <clears throat> Not Martin Luther King, Martin, the original one. Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, uh, if you know anything about him, you know that he was a Roman Catholic monk. He was a priest, and he was a monk in a monastery, and, uh, and a faithful one. He wanted to do right, he wanted to serve God, and uh, he just was going about it the wrong way, and he didn't understand that, and he didn't know it. And uh, <clears throat> in, in a monastery, and uh, the Catholics will, will try to tell you that this doesn't go on anymore, but it does. Um, in monasteries and in convents, monks and nuns are told that if they have unrighteous deeds or if they commit sins or if they have uh, sinful thoughts uh, of any kind whatsoever, that they must beat their body into submission. That they must, uh, they're, they're taught to use a flagellum which we may have heard it as a cat of nine tails, but it is a, it's a whip with different strips of leather on it, and on those ends of those strips of leather, you'll have uh, sharp stones or sharp pieces of metal, and they are taught to literally scourge themselves. Whenever, whenever Martin Luther had, a, had an evil thought, about someone or a lustful thought about some woman or whatever. And, and mind you now, he's in a monastery, which means he doesn't have much contact with the outside world. So he's removed himself from even seeing a woman, much less thinking about him, but every now and then it happens. And he takes the whip out and he beats himself and bloodies himself and everything else. And, and nothing works. Nothing works that he does stops the work of sin in his mortal body. Nothing. So 
he's reading the book of Romans. And the book of Romans talks about the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. His Roman Catholic teaching and the, the, the way that he was taught, he was told that that means that it is the righteousness that he attains to by his works, by his deeds, by beating his body into submission. It is the, it, in other words, he believes and, and was taught and teaches others that they can attain to the perfect level of God by beating their body into submission, by cloistering themselves, a cloistered convent or a cloistered monastery, basically they have removed themselves from, from the outside world. All they see is other monks in there. Some of them have a vow of silence, so they, don't, they, don't, they can't even say a curse word. If they want to, they, they have a vow of silence on them. And there's just all these rules that they must follow. And they're told that following those rules and doing these things will drive sin right out of them. Who believes that? Don't. There is, and I've heard people preach, uh, use social media to try to put forth the idea that if you still sin, obviously you're not saved. The Nazarene church teaches sinless perfection that when you get saved, you become completely sinless, you no longer sin, and you are perfect before God. Years ago, I had a man in my office, and I guess he saw some of my tapes from somewhere, back, this is back several years ago, he was from Texas. He was on his way up to Minnesota. Um, his wife had kicked him out of his house. And it was because his wife was having an affair with the pastor's son. Now, um, this man had, had caught and his wife had confessed to him what they had been doing. So he brings it before uh, this, the pastor, who is his, his, you know, this guy's dad, and, uh, and a few of the elders of the church, and they deem it that in their mind, everything they did doesn't really qualify as adultery, so therefore it's not wrong and it's not sin. And I asked him at I, I asked him right out point out I said, how does that fit then with Nazarene doctrine that once you're saved you don't sin anymore? He said, and he just blew the whistle on him. He said, they just say that it's not sin or and what you did is not sin. It doesn't really qualify as sin, and so you can kind of almost do anything you want to, but it's still not sin. I said that's a joke, and he said, yeah, I know it. I see it firsthand. But to have somebody tell you that you can attain to God's righteousness level is lunacy. Because you, you've already blown it. And once you get saved, it's still never going to happen. So Martin Luther's believing this. And he's beating himself and everything in the world. And then he's mad at God. Angry at God because God is demanding that he step up now to God's version of righteousness on his own merits. And he cannot do it. He's beating himself. He's cloistering himself. He's reading scriptures. He's doing everything religious that he knows how to do. And he still doesn't quite make it. So one day in anger, he's praying. And he's reading Romans. And... He's telling God, God, why would you demand it from us if it's impossible to do? And Martin Luther then, reading through the book of Romans, I don't know exactly what verse he hit upon. Huh? The just shall live by faith. So he reads, reads the word of God, and all of a sudden it dawns on him. It is not the righteous deeds nor the righteous acts that brings him righteousness. 
It is his faith and his trust in God that God will cloak and cover his sin in the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, when God looks upon him, he only sees his son, Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Speak not thou in thine heart. After that, the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. Let me tell you that Joyce Myers believes this doctrine. Back in 2004, some of you might remember, the Post-Dispatch did a series of articles on her. It did not, did not paint her in a very pretty light. And so she got into, uh, uh, she started um, trying to, uh, to spin the story around. And so she hired somebody who got her an interview on News Channel 5, KSDK. And they interviewed her so that she could kind of spin the story around to make her look good. But as far as I'm concerned, it didn't work because I knew the Bible. And she said these words. She said, I am rich. Because I obey God and I deserve to be. Now, as far as I'm concerned, you didn't help yourself one bit, Joyce. You just told me exactly what I thought about you to begin with. You believe in self-righteousness and that God only blesses self-righteousness. Let me tell you something. God never blesses self-righteousness ever, ever. Quit thinking that. Because, and this is what God is telling Israel. For my righteousness, you're going to go into the land and you're going to say, for my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. And I've heard even people that were not charismatic, uh, but of a fundamentalist nature, King James only, Baptist, whatever, fundamentalists say, oh, I, God's blessed me because uh, we don't have a TV in our house and uh, we, don't, uh, uh, we don't do this and we don't go to movies and uh, we don't, we don't uh, uh, we, my wife wears a dress everywhere and, and I wear pants everywhere and we don't wear shorts and my hair's short and my wife's hair's long and, and, and they put all these standards in place and believe then that God blesses them because they live this certain way. He doesn't do it either for them. It's a, it's a put on. It's a put on. So he said, um, for my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Now verse 5. Not for thy righteousness. Or for the uprightness of thine heart. Dost thou go to possess their land? But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it, for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people." So how does God leave Israel in this conversation? He leaves them with the fact that there's no way I'm giving you this land for your righteousness because you're a stiff-necked people. You're not a righteous people. Father, I ask your blessings upon this message. Lord, my mind is a, just a big jar of scrambled eggs. And Lord, I need your help. I need your grace and your goodness this morning. Father, I pray, dear God, that you, would, uh, that you would speak in my place and for me and be the one behind this pulpit that people listen to this morning and let grace be upon all of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and all of God's people said, Amen. Let me, um, let me illustrate this. I want to I mention some names this morning. And I want you to ask yourself, when God blessed them, what were they doing at the time? And let me give you an example. Um, when Samson 
was in a particular city. The Philistines had surrounded the city. And they were, they were ready in the morning, first thing, to jump in and kill Samson as he's rising up out of bed. And yet, Samson goes out, takes the iron gates of the city, lays them on his shoulders, prevails against all the Philistines, takes those two iron gates up to a hill, and prevails against his enemies, and his enemies don't get killed, they get killed. What was Samson in that town doing that day? He was in bed with a harlot, a whore, a prostitute. What was his spiritual condition the night that God had him prevail over his enemies? He was in bed sinning. In fact, that was really Samson's big thing, wasn't it? He, he liked the ladies. What was Samson doing when he finally prevailed against the Philistines and had pulled the temple of their god, Dagon, down and killed all of his enemies? What, what did he do wrong? He confessed to Delilah the secret of his strength. He was told never to let a razor come to his head when he told Delilah how it would take away his strength he would have known then that if she put a razor to his head, that that would take his strength away. He disobeyed God, and yet God blessed him, and he killed more of his enemies in his death than he did with his life. That's Jesus Christ, by the way. Amen? What was Sarah doing? What was her spiritual condition? When the Lord himself was standing there in front of her, and, and standing there and saying to Abraham, uh, Abraham, uh, this time next year, Sarah's going to have a baby. She laughed. And then when the Lord called her out and said, you laughed, what'd she do? She said, I didn't laugh. Like a little kid. And what did God do? He gave her a baby. Exactly the way he said. Look at anybody in the Bible. And look at their condition, their spiritual condition, when God decides to bring them blessings. And generally, they're not doing right. And yet, God decides to bless them anyway. And what is it, what does the Bible say? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was us being in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, and Christ died for us right then and there, and we accepted his gift of salvation, and we were saved, not because we were good, but because we were evil. Amen. Let me read some verses to you. Look up on the screen. Just pretend they're there. Psalm 711, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 11:5 The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Psalm 11:7 For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright. Psalm 23, you know this one. The Lord is say it with me as, as much as you remember. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of for his. It's not for your sake. It's not for your sake. It is for God's name's sake that he leads you in righteousness so that he can present you to the world as a righteous and a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. I tell you, that's just where God's heart is. Now, uh, turn to Psalm 34. Mm -mm -mm. Psalm 34.
Verse 15. That's where I'm going to pick it up at. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And his ears are open under their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Now, if you underline stuff in your Bible, underline that. How many troubles? All of them. I can say this, and I have no idea why I'm saying it. I have no idea what it's about, and and more than likely I I could be wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. I I think it's very possible that, let's say in the next two weeks, somebody listening to my voice is going to be in trouble, or they are going to be troubled. And God is going to deliver them out of that trouble. I'm telling you, God does this stuff. And when you read it, and you're really down on yourself, and you're saying, man, I'm, I'm worthless, I'm no good. God, why did you save me? God, why didn't you just throw me in the lake of fire and get it over with? God, I don't know why you put up with me. God, I'm, I'm wicked. I'm sinful. There's no way that this applies to me. I'm here to tell you, there was, a, there was a day I was going through the Psalms and I was looking at stuff like this and I was pointing to them and I would say, God, you said you didn't lie and this is your word and it doesn't lie and I need you to do this. And I can tell you that right now, as of today, the Lord is still doing what I asked him to do, and this was one of the verses. This is what I asked God to help me with, and I can tell you that God is still helping me with it. He's never stopped, and he never will. Amen? He never will. So, he says in verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Try to preach that, Joel Osteen. It's too negative to preach. He can never give you any hope whatsoever because he can never tell you that things will be bad in your life. He can't tell you that. He cannot even read this portion of Scripture because it says negative things. Meanwhile... Those of us who've got a little bit of sense in their brains can read this and know that God will always do what he said he will do. And that's what our hope is. Our hope is the well-founded knowing that if God said he'll do it, he will do it. Say amen. And I want to tell you something. If you, just, if you try coming to God with arrogance, cockiness, bullheadedness, Things like that, I promise you, God won't have nothing to do with you. But you come to God with a broken heart, He'll save you. He'll break break your heart, amen. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Underline that one. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. There is a price to pay. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Hallelujah! Who does that apply to? Jesus Christ. It means that when he was on the cross and the, and the, the guards were coming around breaking the, the legs of the, of the thieves that were next to him, when they got to Jesus, there was no need to break his bones. He had already died. And so how is it that a thousand years later, these two random Roman soldiers did exactly what God said would happen and that they would not break Jesus' bones other than God knew it would happen. 
Verse 20, he keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. You're going to have enemies, but don't worry about it. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Now, um, turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Uh, who has a way that you can look at other translations of the Bible? Okay. I want uh, somebody to look up Revelation 19, verse 8, in, let's say, the NIV. And then I want somebody to look it up in the New English Version. Okay? And somebody else in the New American Standard Version. Okay? I'm doing this for a reason, because I'm going to make some people look stupid. Not you. Not you. The people who translated these Bibles, I'm going to make them look stupid. Because they have false doctrine in their Bibles. Let's read Revelation 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of many thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him honor and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Now, we're the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. Amen? You know... There used to be a day when a woman wearing white to her wedding actually meant something, didn't it? It meant that she was pure. Does it mean that nowadays? No. Hardly anyone. Nowadays is pure before their wedding. Yes, ma'am. I believe that. I believe they laughed at you. I believe that they probably mocked you. But that's the truth. That's the truth. People don't care anymore. Now, uh, where was I going with this? Okay. That was a sign and a token to the bridegroom and to all attending that this bride is presenting herself to her husband the fact that she is pure and that she is only for him. Okay? Now, so, um, let us, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife hath made herself ready. And if to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean, and what color? White. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Say amen. Now, who's got the NIV? I, have, I can look it up real quick, but I have the New American Standard. Read the New American Standard real loud. Uh, Revelation 19, 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Righteous acts of the saints. That's the New American Standard. Who's got another one? What do you have? New American Standard. Righteous Acts. Megan, what do you have? The English Standard Version. English Standard Version is fine. Uh, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Righteous deeds of the saints. Huh? NIV, go ahead. Every one of those Bibles is lying to you. The King James is the only one that says it right. 
The fine linen is the righteousness of saints. It is not the righteous deeds or the righteous acts or the righteous doings or the righteous amount of money that you throw into the plate. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that you are clothed upon with the righteousness of Christ. Somebody say amen. Notice, notice in the context of the verse, it says, To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, white and clean. It was given to her as a free gift. Amen. Not a loan. It's a grant. It's a gift. Now, take your Bible and turn to uh, Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Now, in this story, Ruth is the Gentile bride. Naomi is Israel. Israel is without a Savior and without a Redeemer because the Redeemers have died. Her, Naomi's husband has died. Naomi's two sons have died. And there was no one to redeem the land and the inheritance and thus no one to redeem Naomi. But then Ruth decides to stay with Naomi and says, Whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou stayest, I will stay. And so uh, she said, you know, whatever, wherever you go, that's where I'll go. Whoever your God is, that'll be my God. Whoever your people will be, that will be my people. And I want to tell you something, that the true body of Jesus Christ is always connected with the people of Israel. Don't you ever deny that. Say amen. Listen, I'm rooting for every, I'm rooting for every Jewish bomb, bullet, missile, every one of them. Uh, I'm going to unhook the train for a second. And I want you to understand there's a difference. In, there's two types of people in this world that fight a, fight a war. There are people like America, Canada, Great Britain, Israel, that when it comes to a warfare, we don't put our own civilian people in harm's way. We don't use our own people, including babies, as human shields. Then you have people like Hitler, Mussolini, uh, Stalin, um, uh, who's the, 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 I almost said the king of North Korea. Uh, huh? Kim Jong-un, um, and all, all of the Arab nations that fight against Israel, they don't have a problem in the world using their own children to fight their battles for them, using children in hospitals, they're using uh, children in schools as human shields. They, they're just daring us to blow them up. They have no regard for life whatsoever. I just thought I'd throw that in there. That's my, that's my message of the week. Now Ruth. Ruth is the Gentile, and she's the one that is going to help redeem Israel. And I want you to notice what happens with Ruth on the night that she figures out that her and Boaz is going to get themselves hitched. I want you to look at what happens. Ruth chapter 3, verse 6. Take a look there. Uh, Naomi told her, said, go to Boaz. Uh, he'll, uh, he'll let uh, his men leave uh, some grain there for you. You go out and you glean with them. And uh, if he asks you who you are, you tell him who you are. And I promise you, he's a, he's a near kinsman. He's a good guy. He'll let you uh, go get us some grain for us. So she goes out and does it. And, and Boaz notices her. So Boaz is in his, uh, he's in his um, um, I don't know, his barn or whatever, his garner. And he's uh, winnowing and he's, he's threshing the, the barley uh, and the seed and everything, getting the chaff off of it. And it gets late. And he's tired, and he lays down, and then Ruth peeks her head in. And this is what happens. In verse 6, she went down onto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. 
And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight. Stop right here. When does the parable of the five wise virgins take place? Midnight. They're connected. When it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Watch this now. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. She laid down at his feet. He took then his skirt, and he covered his bride-to-be. You get that? Boaz is Christ, the Redeemer. It's his skirt, his righteousness that covers her while they're laying there in the barn. And he is, by doing that, he is clothing her with his own clothing. See, when God sees us, uh, he sees us now that we're covered. He sees us not as we were. He sees us as we are in Christ. And when he sees us, he sees only his son, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. Um, oh, where do I want to go? Oh, yeah. Turn to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Mm-mm-mm. Isaiah 51, verse 7. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Now, here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying to you this morning. The only righteousness that you will ever have is the righteousness that Christ covers you with, and it is His own righteousness. Nothing else will allow you to attain eternal life. Nothing else will allow you entrance into God's kingdom forever and forever Nothing else will satisfy the demands of God except the pure righteousness that is His Son, Jesus Christ. Not your own good deeds, not your own good thoughts, not your many prayers, not how many chapters of the Bible you read, not how many church services you attend, not how much money you give. It has nothing to do with that. There's what, no matter how much you do, there's always somebody who's going to try to outdo you in everything. They think that by their much doing and that by their deeds, that that wins them extra points with God. This idea that... Um, uh, how do I say it? Um, this, this idea uh, that, that people have come up with, where they once prayed, always saved, and when you try to ask them, so what about a person who comes down to an altar one day, they pop up a little prayer, and then uh, they forget about it, and they live for the rest of their life in sin and wickedness, and they die. You say they go to heaven. Yeah, they go to heaven. They just won't get as many of the rewards as those who were more righteous than they are. I'm sorry, that don't work. You are, we are not ever given righteousness or rewards based upon our deeds. Never, 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 never. If, we're, if we are covered, if you are covered by the righteousness of Christ, and I am covered by the righteousness of Christ, what difference does it make who does the most things? And who wins the most toys at the end? 
And who gets a better mansion than somebody else? From what I can tell, heaven is heaven. Amen. So I do not believe for a minute that somebody is going to outdo me in righteous deeds and therefore they are going to get more of a reward. Do you know what Abraham's reward was? God told him, he said, Abraham, I am thy exceeding and great reward. If I go to heaven and I'm with Jesus, what else do I need? Amen? Can't you see that? If somebody who really struggles in life, if they're covered with Christ's righteousness, and they are going to heaven with someone who really has not had it all that bad in life, and they're covered in Christ's righteousness, how can we say that one is going to gain more than the other? We can't. Especially when we find out, like in Revelation 19, that that white linen, fine and clean, was granted for us to wear it, and that it represents the righteousness of Christ that is on us. Um, where did I tell you to turn? Isaiah 51, hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness. I'm asking you the question this morning, do you know righteousness? Do you really know it? Do you understand the, the doctrine of the righteousness of the saints the way the Bible spells it out? Do you really know that? Or are you still hung up on righteous deeds and righteous acts and who does more and look at us because we do more than you do and we have standards and that you don't have and we don't let our kids do this and we don't let, I don't let my husband do this and we don't do that and, and it's all about their doing and remember what Paul said for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should what? boast and I guarantee you you can identify someone who believes in a works-based righteousness or a works-based salvation because they will always boast about what they do versus what you don't do. Always. The Seventh-day Adventists, what do they boast about? Going to church on Saturday. And they boast about it. Mormons, they boast about the fact that they have marriages that last for eternity and that they're going to be gods of their own planets. That's stupid. That's ignorant. God says, Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. Verse 8, For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool, but my righteousness shall be for how long? Forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. How long does God's righteousness last? Forever. And nothing can take that away. Now, if you look up on the screen, I would have a really, really cool thing up here. So I want you to imagine it. There are four different ways the word righteous is mentioned in the King James. Righteous, uh, three, three ways. Righteous, righteousness, and righteousnesses. Three different ways. All of those together, they're found exactly 555 times in the King James Bible. That's not the good part. Here comes the good part. The name Christ, 555 times in the King James Bible. What does that tell you? Who is our righteousness? Christ! When God said Christ 555 times, he said righteousness 555 times in the King James Bible. Listen, you can't, you can't turn my heart away from that. I love this Bible, amen? I think all the rest of them are stupid. Amen. Translated by idiots who don't know the Word of God. I'm almost done. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty here. Romans chapter 4. 
Let's, let's look at verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Notice that Abraham believed God. It didn't say that when he obeyed God, and he did obey God. But that's not when it was said to him. It was said, it, it was said that he had righteousness when he believed what God said. I'll give you a little illustration. A name change in the Bible signifies that somebody is a, a new person. Uh, and we sing the song, A New Name written, written Down in Glory, in the book of Revelation. I can't remember which one of the churches it was, but God said, I will give him a new name. I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on it. You and I have a new name written for us. Uh, we have um, Abraham, Abram to Abraham. We have uh, uh, Jacob to Israel and so on. And, uh, but think of, think of Abram now. When, when God blessed Abram, or God blessed, yeah, God blessed Abram in Genesis chapter 17, um, he gave him the new name of Abraham, and he gave that to him before he took his only son and offered him up for, a, for an offering. So in other words, Abram's righteousness and his acting out of his righteousness came after God gave him the new name. God didn't wait for Abram to offer up Isaac first and then say, okay, now I'm going to call you Abraham. He gave him the new name and the righteousness to go with it so that when it's time for Abraham to offer up Isaac, he does exactly what God says, and God has already changed his name. I hope you follow that. So that's what he's saying here in, in Romans chapter 4. If, uh, verse 2, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath wherefore of the glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Verse 4, Now to him that worketh, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you want to try to work your way to heaven, then God owes you a debt. But God doesn't owe you anything. It's the other way around. You owe God, and you can't pay Him off. Verse 5, But to him that worketh not... But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So if I say, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? Righteousness. It's that simple. My grandson believes that. I believed that when I was nine. I didn't know much, but I knew Jesus had to be my Savior or I was going to hell. Verse 6, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose... This is Psalm 32. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, circumcision being those who do works, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. In, in other words, he was given the blessing of righteousness before the work of circumcision. Before that act. So tell me, what is it that you must do or perform in order for God to give you blessings? Nothing. If God loves you, he will bless you. 
If God loves you, he will give you grace. If God loves you, he will give you mercy. And if he loves you, he will never stop giving you mercy. Somebody say amen. I don't know who this message is for. I don't know uh, who it's going to bless. But if you're struggling with disobedience, you're struggling with, you're thinking of the past, thinking of the things that you did, thinking of the things that you've been sorry for just about every day since you did them. If you're struggling with that, then this message is for you. Because God still loves you. Christ still died for you. And if you will just do what a little child can do, believe in God. You know, I was thinking the other day, Gary, I can't think of a time in all my life, my childhood, when I didn't believe in God. I can't, even, even before mom started bringing us to church here, uh, even before we were going to Second Baptist on their church bus, even while we were living up in Arnold, I remember we, had a du we lived in a duplex and there was a man, there was a woman that lived in the bottom part and our bedroom was over her part. And I could hear a man's voice down there. It was a real deep voice like this. And I couldn't hear what he was saying, but he just sounded like God to me. And I was going, that is so cool. God is in my house. I believed in God. I'm a little child. And you know what? Never gotten over that that feeling of knowing that God lives in my house. Amen. Let's bow our heads.